The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, live from Santa Monica edition. It's Wednesday, October 19th, and on today's show, we'll be talking about Birth of a Nation, the new film about Nat Turner's slave rebellion from writer, director, and star Nate Parker. And then we'll be joined by the wonderful Karina Longworth to talk about Birth of a Nation, the very old, very racist, and very cinematically influential film from D.W. Griffith. Finally, we'll celebrate the greatest ever Hollywood movies about Hollywood. Joining me today is Slate film critic Dana Stevens. Hello, Julia. Hello, Dana. Uh, at the moment when Steve Metcalf was scheduled to get on his plane and come here to California, he was vomiting violently in Hudson, New York, and was like, I cannot get on, a, on an airplane. Too much pie, someone in the audience suggested. Um, okay, so before we start, we're so sad that Steve can't be here, and he is so sad that he can't be here that we thought that we might give him an audio get well card from Santa Monica. Are you guys game for that? <laughs> so we thought it would be fun to come up with a very Steve way to tell him to get well. So can you guys shout out like any Steve catchphrases that you're fond of? Bloviate. Oh, bloviate. <laughs> bloviate, Dana. Bloviate seems maybe too apropos. Um, <laughs> Any other ones? Ontological. <laughs> Oligopoly. Very good. Let's dig in. <laughs> there are so many good ones. All right. Let's tell him. Let's tell him. Um, let's shout down with the oligopoly of your immune system. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Down, down with, with the, the oligopoly of, of your, your immune system. system. With that out of the way, we will commence. A.O. Scott called Birth of the Nation, Nate Parker's new film about Nat Turner's slave rebellion, the must-see and won't-see movie of the year. He was referring to the twin clouds of commentary around the film, first the rapturous buzz out of Sundance, and then the concerns raised about accusations of sexual assault in Parker's past. Parker was acquitted then, but his discussion of the event this summer left some vowing to boycott the film. Dana and I both have seen the movie in the last, uh, I saw it just this week. I think you saw it a couple months ago before you reviewed it. Um, and there's a lot to discuss here, uh, the film itself and then the many conversations encircling it. But I think we're going to just start with the film. So Dana, what was, uh, what was your take when you saw it? Oh, I have so much to say, but before we get started, I did want to ask, and, and you can answer in applause, how many people here have seen The New Birth of a Nation? Oh, that's a wan little smattering of applause. Okay, that makes me want to ask a second question. How many of you sat it out because of the reasons Julia mentioned, that you boycotted it? So it sounds like slightly more boycotters than, than seers of the movie. Um, I'm glad that we get to, uh, to dig into this conversation talking about the baggage that this movie comes with, because in writing about it and reviewing it, you know, I didn't want to lay all that on the reader before getting to the discussion of the movie itself. But if there's a test case out there, certainly this year, if there's a test case for how you feel about separating the art from the artist, right, that whole question of whether the artist's life should have a bearing on your viewing experience, this movie is, is a place to test that belief system. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's, it's pretty much impossible if you keep up at all with entertainment <clears throat> news not to go into it with all of that baggage. And I think that probably did inform my viewing of it in some way that I can't quite separate out. But 
I would say in general that after the rapturous Sundance buzz that you mentioned, which to quantify it a little bit, it made the biggest <coughs> distribution deal that's ever been made at Sundance. It won the Grand Jury Prize for Drama, and it won the Audience Appreciation Award. So it was both popular, you know, critically lauded, et cetera. It came out of Sundance basically with a flotilla of honors. And, uh, and given all of that, I think I did find the movie pretty disappointing and pretty thin, but it is, it is hard to say how much of that has to do with the sense of, of disenchantment from, you know, what we learned about the director's past in the meantime. Um, I mean, maybe this is a place to show our clip, no? Yeah, so just to set it up briefly before we play it, this is a moment about two-thirds of the way through the film uh, where uh, Parker is beginning to challenge the kind of religious orthodoxy he's grown up with. You know, an indigent white man came by and asked to be baptized. He, he Nat Turner, baptized this white preacher. And uh, Sam Turner, uh, the owner of the plantation, is not pleased. We've been good to you. My whole family has. And you go on and do something like this to me. A nigger baptizing a white man on my property. Do you know how this makes us look? This could ruin everything we worked for. Boy, you'd better say something and quick. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost. That's actually a strong scene. I think that goes against our argument that this movie is not so good because that scene is really good. (laughs) I mean, why did I find it disappointing? Because this movie is telling a story that's so important and does so badly need to be told, but is telling it in what I found to be an overly heroicizing way. And that while Nate Parker is very effective as an actor, I think he makes some mistakes as a director and writer in framing this story in the heroic way he does, and especially in the things that he leaves out. So if you start reading about the actual Nat Turner rebellion, it has a much darker side than is, is, is shown or seen in this movie. Then the interest of, um, of creating a narrative around Nat Turner that, that makes him sort of the grandfather of the civil rights movement, uh, which is not necessarily a position that the civil rights movement has historically wanted to put Nat Turner in. But Nate Parker has to leave out a lot of things, including the fact that the rebellion wound up slaughtering about 60 to 70 white people of all ages, including women, children, and babies. So essentially, you know, it was a, it was a very brutal massacre. Um, to be sure, that massacre was dwarfed by the massacre that then ensued of not only the, the blacks involved in the rebellion, but, you know, all kinds of people who had nothing to do with it. And so the the ultimate number of black casualties versus white casualties was much, much higher. But the entire event was really sort of a horrific chapter of, of American history. And so I think that's why it's been traditionally left out of genealogies of civil rights, if, if we want to put it that way. And, uh, and I'm not sure that a, a movie that doesn't honestly grapple with that, with the actual facts and numbers of that massacre, can can perform the function that he wants this movie to, to perform, which is essentially to take back the title and kind of rechristen and, and rename it. Yeah, I mean, the name of the movie itself is this amazing act of filmmaking chutzpah that I admire. I mean, to take this movie that, as we'll discuss with Karina in just a moment, is you know so central to the history of film, so abhorrent in its racial ideas, um, and so influential 
at the time on both fronts um, and to say, I'm just going to make a movie 100 years later that takes a different part of American history uh, and a different set of violence um, and reclaim this title and, and this role. It's a bold, ambitious move. And it's a move that there's much to admire about. And it's a move that I think helps explain the rapturous response that the film got, you know, that the, not only did it receive all those accolades at Sundance, but it aired right in the midst of the Oscar so white conversation and controversy of Oscar season this past year. Uh, and at a moment where Hollywood and its institutions seemed absolutely incapable of either putting filmmakers of color in the position to make and star in work to promote and fund it, and then to award those efforts. Um, it felt I think vital, it seemed to people who were there in the room, it just seemed like a really vital effort and its boldness seemed like a necessary corrective to uh, Hollywood and the way it conducts business. Um, and it's, when you see the the finished film, it's it's very hard to peel away the layers of conversation around it. What's I think you're right, Dana, that it oversimplifies the violence at the end. The The subject of the film is actually really the awakening of Nat Turner, who um, is, you know, taught to read as a boy, is encouraged to acquaint himself with the Bible, uh, and then the story of his political awakening, which is what the film mostly centers on, comes in his young adulthood when he's become a, a preacher to the other slaves in the plantation where he lives and his uh, the, the slave owner of that plantation has fallen on hard times and uh, uh, someone gives him the idea to take Nat Turner around essentially to preach a gospel of obedience to other slaves. So he gets to go see slaves on a variety of other plantations, many kept in much worse and harsher circumstances than he and um, the other slaves living with him, uh, and then is sort of forced to stand for a kind of Christianity that is intended to keep all of those people down and docile and accepting of the enormity of the circumstances that they find themselves in. So so you, you spend a lot of time with Nate Parker, who I agree is very effective as, as an actor, um, beginning to understand how to apply the ideas he's encountered in the Bible through the fact that he's been allowed and encouraged to learn to read and spend time with it and beginning to question the system that he finds himself within. But then the final third of the film, the, the violence happens very quickly. And I think the other thing that I suspect I would find problematic if I had seen this movie, you know, devoid of any conversation around it, but that certainly plays problematically in the wake of the conversation around sexual assault in Parker's past is that the other big piece of his political awakening, apart from this traveling preacher uh, work, is um, the violence perpetrated against his wife, uh, who's raped by a white slave catcher and by the wife of one of his friends and fellow slaves, who is um, essentially a, a guest at the plantation, takes a fancy to her, and she's proffered to him uh, as essentially a sexual gift. Several critics of the film noted that these incidents really play as acts of sexual violence where the acts are perpetrated against women, but the victims in the film are presented as the men. That in some ways it seems as though Nat Turner and his fellow slave are the are the people who've been wronged by their inability to protect and keep their women safe from the depredations of these white men. And that those incidents are presented as real turning points in Nat Turner's political mobilization in a way that there seems to be no, I mean, 
you know, that obviously is one of the great horrors of slavery and certainly was part of the enormity that he was dealing with, but the it's really presented as like a rape revenge flick in a way that seems less in accordance with history and seems to use sexual violence against women in an slightly instrumentalist way in terms of the plot that rang very strangely to me yeah, given the I'd conversation. I'd say more than summer. slightly. I mean, the Gabriel Union character, who is not his wife, but his friend's wife on the plantation, is, I don't think she even speaks a line. She may have one line in the movie, and, and yet her violation is is really central to, like She say, doesn't speak, and, and she, I think, she discussed that, that that was a joint choice that she and Parker made, that she felt that 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 they believed that was actually the best way to help bring some of the stories of sexual violence against black women to screen. But certainly she's not a very fully realized character in the yeah, film. I mean, to me, that's a problem on two fronts. It's a problem because, because as you say, it's, it's an instrumentalization, right? It's taking not one, but two acts of sexual violence and kind of building the, the story of the, the, the male's suffering and, and, and discovering and awakening upon it. And it also seems like it sort of trivializes the rebellion. If the rebellion is just a vigilante-style act of, you know, Clint Eastwood justice, that he's, his, his woman has been violated and he's going to get back at the people who did it, then, then that political element or this whole idea that, you know, civil rights begins here in 1831 with this rebellion sort of drops away. So Dana, would you recommend that uh, the unwatchers and boycotters in the fil- in the audience go see this movie? Not the boycotters. I mean, I feel like if you if you if you don't want to just give money to Nate Parker because of his history, that seems perfectly understandable to me. I think it's it's going to be a big part of the conversation, you know, about <laughs> movies this year, both in sort of the award season and and just in going forward in movies that, that get made. And I will say that you started off saying that it's, I think, an audacious movie was a word you used. It, I do appreciate its audacity and the fact that he was able to get it made and that maybe he will open doors for other interesting movies to get made at this scale and distributed at this scale that, that might not have otherwise. All right. Well, the film, again, is Birth of a Nation by Nate Parker. It's out in theaters now. Uh, and you can join us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest to talk about your responses if you've seen the film. Now we will be joined on stage by the wonderful Karina Longworth. Karina. Hello. Karina, as I think most of you in the crowd know, uh, is the host of the very, very wonderful podcast, You Must Remember This. Uh, I think Dana first endorsed it a couple of years ago. Let then me just it, say, I got in on the ground floor with You Must Remember This. I liked it before it was cool. She definitely did. That's always true of Dana, but uh, <laughs> especially so in this case. And now uh, it is a panoply show, so it is a podcast sibling of ours, which we're very excited and proud about. Uh, and we're thrilled to have Karina here today. Um, we wanted to take the opportunity of Nate Parker's audacious seizing of the title Birth of a Nation to do something that I, if you are like me in this audience, I think a lot of culturally semi-literate people um, don't often get a chance to do, which is to really think seriously about and try to understand what the original Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith was about. If you are like me, you have sort of one sentence filed in your head about this movie, which is, it is an incredibly seminal and important piece of filmmaking that is a deeply vile piece of racist propaganda, which played some role in reactivating the KKK at the dawn of the 20th century. And then your knowledge kind of stops there. 
Um, and I've, I've got that like little nugget filed away, but I'd never watched the movie. I'd never gone back and encountered any of it. I had never read that much about the history. Um, and given that Dana is writing a book about the Buster Keaton and the silent film era and that Karina is an expert on Hollywood history, it seemed like a good moment to uh, visit the film and try to understand its impact, why people still talk about it, even though it was so vile, why it was so vile and what its reception was like and what that meant. Um, and I think we'll start a little bit with some of the history from Dana. So tell us tell us why someone like me hears from the people like you in their life constantly. Birth of a Nation, it's just this brilliant film, even though it's so horrible. Like what's, what is the brilliance? What are the things that it did that were groundbreaking that make people continue to talk about it, even though it seems like it should sort of be discarded with the racist propaganda of the past? Yeah, that's a very active and alive question with this movie still. When you watch it, I rewatched it over the last few days for this segment and thought, you know, there's both an, an argument for throwing it in the ash can of history and an argument for making every American see it. I mean, Ultimately, I would come down on the second side um, and, and think that, you know, people should overcome their resistance to the content and and see it because of its importance in American history. Um, but again, as maybe with the with the Nate Parker Birds of a Nation, there might be some people who just find it too vile and just say, you know, it's at least it's going in my personal ash can. And, you know, that's that's your prerogative. But so to give some historical setup and Karina, you can you can jump in if there's um, interesting or important things I don't get to. But. Birth of a Nation came out in 1915, which was pretty far into D.W. Griffith's career. He'd been making movies since I think 1908, um, but but it was one of the, his it was one of his first feature films, not his very first, and it was one of the first feature length films, um, you know, made in in the U.S. and even the world. I think right there had been a big Italian epic the year before that was something of an influence on Griffith, but really making a three hour plus long epic that's that's a on a grand scale, and it's cutting from one story to another and showing a war and domestic stories at the same time. Something that, you know, now is sort of bread and butter of the big screen was something that had not been done before. It was, as far as anybody knew in Hollywood, the longest movie ever made at that time. It's, and it's three hours and 15 minutes or, or something like that. Um, it was also a huge hit in its time. An argument can be made that, you know, it's sort of had the highest per capita box office of any any movie of all time. And Although, I mean, because it's so hard to calculate, and I think a lot of the, you know, distributors and exhibitors that helped Birth of a Nation get out there but also made money off of it were sort of shady in their accounting because um, the industry was so new and there wasn't a lot of oversight. So it was considered the most profitable film of all time until Gone with the Wind. Mm. And But now, I, about a year ago, I actually tried to figure out how much money did it make and none of the numbers are reliable. Right. Well, that, and, and that makes sense because at the time, essentially, right, I mean, the the, 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 the film industry and the PR industry were so closely braided <laughs> together that it's, it's, it's almost impossible to extricate the truth about the movie from the legend. There are a lot of... of innovations that are attributed to D.W. Griffith that he didn't necessarily invent or certainly invent in Birth of a Nation, but that he, you might say, codified. He wasn't the first director, for example, to move a camera, um, but he was the first one to move a camera with the deftness and the, the thoughtfulness that he did. And we'll see in some of the clips that we look at, you know, things that might seem like a normal part of film grammar to us now. Oh, well, of course, the camera is going to move at this moment from to show this part of the scene instead of this other part would have been something that was radical at the time. Um, what are some other technical innovations you can point out from Birth of a Nation? Um, one thing that seems to be, this was the first time it was ever done, is he's shooting these incredibly large crowd scenes, often like on a battlefield. And in order to direct all those actors, like from where he was standing by the camera, which was very far away from them, he developed this like complicated system using flags and mirrors so that somebody very far away from him could like get the signal for when they would move. 
And another thing which you'll see in at least one of these clips is that it's probably the first film that was shot at night and they use these magnesium flares to illuminate you know, the scenes and often cases like it's actors that are like waving these things around. And so you see these streaks of light on the screen. There's also tinting on, on the reels, which was one of the ways that Griffith would show the change of sometimes from day to night or changing to a different mood so that the climactic battle at the end has a red tint on it. Um, and, and all of that stuff would have, would have happened at the time, right? When it, was, when it was on the road, people saw that version. I mean, honestly, there are probably a couple of different prints that were circulating. Some of them might have been tinted. Some of them might not have been. Um, the, one, the thing that we're watching right now is definitely a restoration um, but I mean, I think that especially those, those night shoots, like it's really hard to see those images and not see, think of them as being red because they're so powerful. So just briefly before we play the clip, I will just try to very quickly summarize the plot as you might expect with a three and three hour and 15 minute long epic. It is epic and there's a lot in it, but essentially the, the film has two parts. The first half of it takes place before and during the Civil War, features uh, two families, one Northern, one Southern, who uh, know each other a little bit and are torn asunder by the war. And the film begins with the domestic story of their relationships and then kind of moves to this grand battle scene. All right, let's play the, the first clip. Just a couple of technical things about the battle scene. Um, you'll see one of those camera movements that, that I talked about. And, uh, and it is it's quite now the, the, even striking, the, the, the moment that he, um, that he essentially is parallel cutting between two different scenes and then shows their spatial relationship to each other by moving the camera. That's one thing to notice. Karina, I want to get to the reception to the film in a moment, but before I do, I should set up what the second half of the film is about. Um, it focuses on, so the first half carries you through that battle and to the assassination of Lincoln. The second half of the film focuses on reconstruction and gets much more heavily into the essentially a set of vile racial, racial stereotypes. It's very obsessed with miscegenation. It's obsessed with, uh, you know, the unnaturalness, the so-called unnaturalness of freed black slaves who are presented as, you know, terrorizing the South, essentially, terrorizing various white women. The younger sister of the protagonist at one point, uh, you know, jumps to her death because she's being sexually pursued. Uh, the Klan is presented as like the heroic saviors of the poor white families of the South who restore order by murdering black people and preventing them from voting. It gets very, very difficult to watch and terrible uh and was met with like wide acclaim right i mean and some protest what was well, what no, was i mean i, I would say that there was actually quite a bit before the movie was seen by a lot of people it was protested by the naacp which was a relatively new organization but was high profile enough that it made a lot of noise um but then the movie it it, that didn't hurt the movie. If anything, like the people that Griffith and Thomas Dixon, who wrote the novel that the book is based on, they believe that it helped the film, that the, that all press was good you know, press. One in thing this case. That, that surprised me coming into this film was feeling like this is the sort of movie you should never see because of its racial ideas, but you should maybe see if you're interested in the history of film. And I came away from it feeling like it's actually an important movie to see because of its racial ideas and how they were, how rapturously they were received to, to really understand that a hundred years ago, 
a movie that expressed these ideas could be perceived as normal and popular is actually incredibly mind-boggling. I mean, it was an artifact of its time. And I mean, one thing that's, I think it is valuable to have this sort of a snapshot of what a certain type of propaganda could look like from that time. I mean, the same year that this movie came out, Congress passed an immigration bill that banned the entrance into this country of anybody with African blood. Um, there was, you know, a lot of things going on in terms of civil rights that were sort of choking down on um, the freedoms that had been granted during the Reconstruction era. Um, every time that Republicans in the Congress tried to pass like anti-lynching things in the 1920s, there were Southern Democrats that made sure that didn't happen. I mean, like there were people in America that thought that this version of American history was correct at this time. And for many years later, um, it wasn't, the, I wouldn't say it was the majority of America, but it was some people, especially people with Southern roots. I actually brought the uh, the 1915 review from Variety of Birth of a Nation because I was I was just interested to hear read about its reception at the time. And for one thing, it's just it's just interesting that Variety. You know, I mean, you can just you can go to the Variety website and look at the reviews for the 1915 and the 2016 Birth of a Nations and compare them. They're still they're still just there. Um, but there were a couple of, of remarks about race that I wanted to to read because they were just they were just fascinating and chilling in terms of what Karina was just saying of the the normalcy, just the the unproblematic nature of, of this movie's subject matter. Um, so this is a ways into the, to the 1915 review. It says, um, Griffith struck it right when he adapted the Dixon story for the film. He knew the South, he was from Kentucky, D.W. Griffith, and he knew just what kind of picture would please all white classes. <laughs> so then you think the next sentence is going to maybe talk about its reception among the non-white classes, but no, there's just there's there's no mention at all, nor of the protests, you know, the NAACP protests or any kind of counter discourse whatsoever. It's a review that is all about the the tech is, is full of admiration for the technical accomplishments of the movie, and you know, basically completely oblivious to anything problematic in its subject matter. I mean, one thing that I wanted to note in terms, and this speaks to how sort of embedded these ideas were in in American culture at that time is that one of the first screenings of the movie actually took place at the White House because Thomas Dixon, who wrote the novel, was like an old college buddy with President Wilson. And as Griffith was finishing the film and writing the intertitles, he actually like copied some of them word for word and almost word for word from writings that Wilson had done, like written himself about the Reconstruction era. And Wilson loved the movie, even though there are incredible distortions of American history here. And he was a historian. It actually, you know, this sort of falsified history fit with his point of view in a lot of ways. It was also the first movie ever screened at the White House, which is astonishing. Karina, what do you, uh, you know, I, I assume as a film historian, you do not subscribe to the argument that this movie should be tossed in the ash heap of history. But, but what do you say to people who feel like, you know what, no matter what its technical achievements, um, those achievements have been achieved. We're making different movies now. Like, let's let this movie and its terrible ideas just go to bed. I mean, honestly, that's cool. Um, <laughs> I, like, I, I can't, I can't personally recommend that anybody devote three hours of their life to watching this movie because it because it's so problematic, and because I do think that you can can kind of get a sense of what was groundbreaking about it, what sort of experiencing it like we're doing right now, like by watching clips. And I do think that any viewing of it needs to be sort of part and parcel with some kind of educational conversation. Um, you, c you can't watch this movie out of context at all. Um, 
but I do think it's incredibly valuable as this historical artifact. Um, I always forget who the quote is from. I think it's from Rivette, but there's this quote about how every movie is a documentary about its time and place and of its making. Um, and this movie, I would say, is um, fits with that theory incredibly well. All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for um, teaching me a little bit about the history of this film. It sounds like we all recommend that you don't watch this movie. <laughs> Uh, but there's a lot of interesting ways out there to learn about it online. It's available on YouTube if you're interested in learning more. Um, I we'll actually don't recommend that. I think if you care about film, you should watch it, but to each his own. All right. Good. Sorry. Didn't mean to speak for you, Dana. We got to thinking about what it would be fun to talk about with Karina on stage, and it occurred to us that another big piece of, I won't call it Oscar bait, because that's a very crass way to talk about the finest that Hollywood has to offer. But another Oscar contender for this year is a movie that's coming out in December from Damien Chazelle, the director of Whiplash, called La La Land, which uh, will star Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling and is a sort of Hollywood aspirant musical tale. Uh, and I expect we'll talk about it uh, later this fall, but it got us to thinking about Hollywood's own narcissism uh, of making a repertory theater of movies only about itself um, and how much Hollywood loves to put on a show about Hollywood and putting on a show. So we thought we would uh, bring to you and to each other our favorite Hollywood movies about Hollywood um, and discuss them and the genre a little bit, what it is that makes the subject so enticing to creators and, and what makes a good movie of this genre. Um, Dana, we're going to start with yours. Oh, I should let you all know that we have not filled each other in on our selections. So we're all going to be surprised and startled by the clips that we play. So Dana, Dana will go first and set up, tell us what her movie is and, and then cue the clip when you want to. Okay, so my setup. So when we decided that we were going to talk about our favorite L.A. movies, I immediately knew which one I wanted to do. It immediately popped to mind. I'll tell you the title in a second. But then the, the, the funny thing was that then when I put it on and rewatched it, knowing that I would have to find a one-minute clip to illustrate its its essential L.A.-ness, it was... It was Surprising to find that there were almost no exteriors, <laughs> that this movie was almost entirely shot in a studio, and that its feeling of LA-ness was almost entirely telegraphed by architecture, decor, and uh, details that had nothing to do with, with where it was made. There were a few establishing shots here and there of some famous LA landmark, but basically it was, you know, people in cars with back projection, and it was just sort of Hollywood fakeness at its, at its utmost, but maybe that is what makes it such an ultimate Hollywood movie. It's also one of my favorite movies in the world. It's In a Lonely Place the Nicholas Ray movie from 1950. And uh, I actually snagged it right away because I thought that maybe somebody else on our team, which was going to include Steve at the time, would get it first if I didn't. So the clip that I'm going to show, um, I'm trying to, sh to, to talk about how architecture communicates uh, Los Angeles in that way. And to talk about that, I need to give a little bit of background on the production of In a Lonely Place. So uh, it was directed by Nicholas Ray, and it starred Humphrey Bogart and Nicholas Ray's wife at the time, Gloria Graham, who their marriage was in a very troubled period at the time, which uh, which made the production history both, you know, troublesome and and um, and melodramatic for all concerned. For example, at a certain point, they separated, and Nicholas Ray started to sleep on the set. He actually sort of moved into the movie set during the the, the making of the movie. Um, but but another kind of intimate detail of the movie is that it's shot in a in a reconstruction of the apartment that was the first apartment 
Nicholas Ray ever lived in when he moved to LA, which is still standing. It's this, it's this little mission apartment building with 10 units in it called the Villa Primavera. And uh, some exterior shots were shot at the Villa Primavera, but most of it was a reproduction that was created in the studio. And, uh, and this, this scene that I'm going to show establishes a few different things about that apartment building, which is all part of how the, the romance in this movie is constructed. So both Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham, who he's going to fall in love with, but has not yet in the scene we're going to see, live in this little mission uh, complex where their apartments look into each other rear window style, right? So they can sort of see, particularly him, he can see into her apartment and what she's doing. Um, and and that becomes really important later on as the noir plot develops and, and the suspense grows. So this scene that we're going to see, the two of them cross in the courtyard for the first time, seeing each other for the first time, as he's bringing a different girl home to his apartment. And, uh, and you'll also see a detail that becomes really important in the movie, which is these kind of cage-like grill works, these, um, I don't know how to describe them, but mission-style ironwork that decorates this building, which, as you'll see in this scene, starts to function more and more as the movie goes on as a kind of cage in which someone, usually a woman, is entrapped. Um, so that's why I chose this scene from In Lonely Place. My, what a pretty place. Sort of Hacienda-like, huh? Excuse me. Neighbor of yours? No, I never saw her before. I'll be right with you. It must be wonderful to be a writer. Oh, <laughs> thrilling. Right, so even in that little scene, you kind of see how the atmosphere of menace is being created in this in this beautiful Spanish mission style apartment. And I just I know that when I saw that movie, it always left me with this feeling, this mood of uh, of just what I imagined Los Angeles to be, this you know no film noir world of Spanish mission architecture. And then reading up on it for this segment, I saw that um, that Curtis Hansen, the recently deceased filmmaker who made L.A. Confidential, showed all of his actors in a lonely place before they started filming because that was sort of the feeling, the spirit that he wanted them to be inspired by for the movie. Why don't we hear about Karina's movie and then we can talk about mine, which... Um, is not in the same spirit as you'll discover. Because um, I think it's interesting to talk about those those flip side versions of, of how Hollywood views itself. And I will say, spending time out here, for all that I picked a sunnier version of Los Angeles, I do, the, the, the influence of that kind of California noir, the like the menacing sunshine, I do get when I spend time out here, just the feeling of like, this place is too nice. <laughs> something is not right. <laughs> like, and I, you know, that's sort of inculcated from watching the movies, but it, but it lasts just like when I'm driving around Santa Monica. But Karina, tell us a little bit about your movie. So my movie is the 1954 version of A Star is Born, which, I mean, if you've followed my work, I've, I say a lot that it's my favorite movie of all time. And it's, it's just something that I never seem to get tired of. And I, every time I watch it, I'm 
emotionally moved and sort of blown away by it in different ways. Um, but basically, there are several versions. Hollywood has told several versions of this story at various points in its history. It's almost like its foundational myth. The idea is that like there's a big star and there's a nobody and they fall in love. And as a nobody rises, the big star falls. So in this version of the story, the big star is played by James Mason. And he's like a big, you know, star of like pirate epics and stuff, but he's also an alcoholic. And he meets Judy Garland, who's like an aging singer with a band. And he is so blown away by her talent that he basically arranges for her to have a career. Um, and, you know, this is an epic, almost three hour long uh postmodern musical made in 1954. So a lot happens. Um, but this clip we're going to see is like basically the beginning of the third act when things start getting really, really dark. Um, and Judy Garland's character has just won an Oscar and her husband has not been there. And he interrupts her Oscar speech drunkenly. So let's roll the clip. My, I had my speech all prepared, but I... It's gone right out of my head. Let's see... Well, it's silly to be so formal, isn't it? I... I know most of you are sitting out there by your first names, don't I? I made a lot of money for you, gentlemen, in my time through the years, haven't I? Well, I need a job now. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's, that's the speech. That's it. I need a job. That's what I wanted to say. I, I need a job. It's as simple as that. I, I need a job, that's all. My talents, I may say, are not confined to dramatic parts. I can play comedy, too. Yes. Well, we'll, 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 we'll play something, somebody. Norman, darling. So... Um, yeah, I mean, just even just I've seen this movie 300 times and just watching it, just watching that scene, I'm shaking. So, yeah, there was like a pretty major gasp in the whole theater. I'm, um, I'm, I'm so touched that you picked that movie. That is for sure in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. And part of what I think what makes it so it's a great love story, perfectly cast. Judy Garland is really at her at her best. I mean, she's at her most beautiful. She sings incredibly um, but I think, yeah, the, the 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 element of that movie that that's sort of irreproducible in, in any other movie I can think of has to do with its its ruthlessness, the ruthlessness of its view of the industry that they work in, and uh, and even of their of their love. You know, as much as they as they try to make it, they can't they can't detach themselves from the industry and from their own kind of status. And and so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 as, it's as much a con it's a condemnation of stardom, you know, as much as it's it's a love story. Yeah, I mean, the last scene of this movie, no spoilers, but like it's this incredible, like sentimental, mawkish moment, but it's also incredibly cynical, like this place that the Judy Garland character gets to. And yeah, I'm almost crying just trying to describe it to you guys. So well, and also, of course, what you know of Judy Garland's <laughs> own life story and her own struggles with alcoholism. She's not the alcoholic character in the movie, but you just you see her as someone who understands this problem of codependency and addiction from the inside out. And it's just a, the most wrenching performance. All right, well, I will present my clip. It's from Singing in the Rain. <laughs> I love Singing in the Rain. Like, I, it's just... It's great. It's different. just a totally different kind of movie. And it's more... Um, 
to me, it's a, it's a movie that's um, about putting on a show and what putting on a show means as putting on a show changes. It's this movie that's, you know, set um, right as the silent era is merging to talkies. And the premise is that this very famous silent era star has a horrible squawking voice. And so Debbie Reynolds must be her voice as Kathy Selden, the beautiful ingenue. And there's a love story and there's a lot of hijinks. But the other thing that's amazing about it is it's this Gene Kelly movie. So it has these incredible dance scenes that almost play you know, and the, and the history of the character uh, that Gene Kelly plays and his sidekick is that they came up through vaudeville and the movie sort of plays like vaudeville. It has so much physical charm in it, even though it's about the moment where movies got much less physical and much chattier. Um, and I love the kind of multiple levels of types of entertainment that happens. So we will play a clip from uh, one of the my favorite moments in the movie, the moment where they've seen the first screening of the first talkie film starring this duo, and it's been laughed out of the theater because it's so atrocious, and they've just come up with the brilliant idea that they'll recut it as a musical, uh, and they're thrilled with their own genius innovation. Good morning, good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning, good morning to you. When the band began to play, the stars were shining bright. Now the milkman's on his way. It's too late to say good night. So good morning, good morning. Sunbeams will soon smile through. Good morning, good morning to you and you and you and you. Good morning, we've gabbed the whole night through. Good morning, good morning to you. Nothing could be grander than to be in Louisiana in, in the morning. morning. In the morning, it's great to stay up late. Good morning, good morning to Might you. Might be just as iffy if we was in Mississippi. When we left the movie show, the future wasn't bright. <laughs> That's right before the part where they start prancing around using raincoats as props. Um, but just the like sheer, uh, we'll fix it all with our pluck and creativity charm, uh, I love. And then I love that scene, even though it's not particularly the Hollywoodness of it. I love that scene as a as capturing the giddy moment in the middle of the night when you think you figured everything out, which is like a very true emotion that I have not often seen captured on film, much less seen captured uh, in musical form with dancing and tipping over couches and chairs. Um, so that's my favorite Hollywood movie. About that Hollywood. scene you chose too, I, I was, it just struck me that it also uses architecture and decor to establish Californianness and Hollywoodness in this, in this great way because it's supposed to be a silent film star's house, you know, and so the kind of grandiose decor and, and the, the mission tiles on the walls, it all just feels like the place that somebody like that Gene... And actually that scene, that scene opens with him sitting at the table in his house and sort of, you know, swirling glasses. I guess they're not actually drinking brandy, but they have this very rueful world. They're weary. drinking glasses of milk. Cause I vibe. Oh yeah, so I think that's wholesome. right. But they're, um, <laughs> it's true. But it, but he basically is saying like, well, enjoy your last night in splendor. Like my career is over. I'm toast. Um, and he, you know, actually the, the plot, although less dark than yours, is sort of he's the big star who's facing an existential crisis in his career and she's the plucky ingenue. But this one ends with them both looking at a billboard of their mutual fame. Spoiler. Because <laughs> um, it all works out for them. All right, I think we're uh, ready for endorsements. So, Karina, we're dragooning you into our our show custom. You don't you don't endorse on. Uh, you must remember this, but at the end of our show, we say our favorite things from the week, 
Dana. So because we're talking about movies and this is an entirely Hollywood and movie themed show, I'm going to endorse something, a little piece of writing related to movies. It's uh, it's written by Louise Brooks, the silent film star, um, famous for her black bob and her, um, you know, her, I don't know, her devil may care attitude, uh, who after she dropped out of Hollywood and stopped making movies, which was pretty early on, early 30s, um, started to write about Hollywood and wrote some really wonderful essays about, about Hollywood history and about William Randolph Hearst and all the characters she had encountered in her time there. And she has an essay about Humphrey Bogart, which I came across in researching <coughs> in a lonely place, uh, in which one of the points she makes, um, it's called Humphrey and Bogey. And she's sort of talking about these two sides of the man she knew and uh, essentially how he went from being this very charming gentleman to, in her eyes, um, uh, this this somewhat frightening, uh, sordid character who is not unlike <coughs> Dixon Steele, the character he plays in In a Lonely Place. And one of the things that she observes is that there's no character he ever played on screen that's closer to the real Bogart that she knew, at least the later Bogart, than, than Dixon Steele in In a Lonely Place. Um, and it's this very chatty piece of writing that sometimes sort of rambles, but always rambles interestingly because the things that she was doing in those days are just are just fascinating. And it's just kind of a glimpse of, you know, what it's like to have an intimate friendship with someone who is, you know, both a, a fascinating artist and a somewhat potentially malevolent character, especially <coughs> when he drinks. So Humphrey and Bogey by Louise Brooks. We'll put a link to it on the show page. That sounds great. Karina, you want to go next? Because we talked about um, The New Birth of a Nation and a little bit about La La Land, which are two movies that are sort of end of the year releases that like have these, you know, expectations on them. I just wanted to recommend two other movies that are coming out that I've seen that I hope people, you know, I, I hope people watch basically. Um, one is Manchester by the Sea, uh, directed by Kenneth Lonergan, who made a movie a long time ago called uh, You Can Count on Me and also made a movie a few years ago called Margaret, which not very many people saw, but... Um, this is a really sort of like epic family movie starring Casey Affleck and, um, it's, you know, incredibly heartbreaking. It's about loss and grieving, but it's also really funny. Um, and then the other one that I want to recommend is Moonlight, um, which is directed by a guy named Barry Jenkins who made a movie also kind of a while ago called Medicine for Melancholy, Medicine for Melancholy. Um, but Moonlight is, um, the most beautiful movie that I've seen this year. And, um, it's just tells the story of, of an, the African American male experience in sort of a fractured way, but is, uh, just really moving and really nicely done. So I hope you guys check it out. I suspect we will talk about both of those movies on future episodes of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Um, thank you so much, Karina. All right, my endorsement is neither lofty nor filmic, but all of these uh, discussions of place made me think of the thing that made me laugh the most hard in the past week, which was a week given the news um, where laughter was welcome and rare. Uh, and that is something that I don't frequently watch, but a new episode of The Simpsons. There was one recently, I believe it was called The Town, making fun of my hometown of Boston. And uh, the conceit is that it opens with Homer and the, and his pals at the bar and a bunch of irritating Bostonians are in town with like fake Red Sox hats, um, you know, to get around the trademark stuff. Uh, and they're watching the, the uh, Americans, which is the version of the Patriots, win a football game by having their mascot catch the ball and run into the end zone. And then the ref calls it legal because they had the mascot on the roster. And then the Bill Belichick ask uh, coach just kind of like glowers in, in like pride for having found another shifty way to win again. 
Uh, and then there's this great moment where the sad Springfielders are like, oh, no, it was our one chance. Like, how could they possibly have the mascot? It's so terrible. And then some Boston smartass is like, you got to cover the mascot. Use your noggin. Play smart. <laughs> and like, you know, like... Boston is oft made fun of in many genres as it well it should be. But the like the guy just be like full of bravado and, and telling you that it was your fault that you didn't figure out how to cheat that way really accorded with some sports fans I know and uh, made me laugh. So that's my endorsement for the week. Um, Karina, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Dana, as always. As always, it was fun. Thank you very much. Uh, you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ben Frisch. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. This event would not have been possible without the heroic efforts of Faith Smith and everyone here at the Arrow Theater. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Work. The Culture Gab Fest is part of that network. You can check out the entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at SlateCultFest. For Karina Longworth and Dana Stevens, I'm Julia Turner. See you next week. Let me